0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Jose Manuel Barrosa, chair of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and Alan Jope, CEO of Unilever, joined the Washington Post Live to discuss strengthening the COVID-19 recovery response globally and the role of hygiene, sanitation, and clean water in fighting the spread of new strains. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter and anchor of the Health 202 newsletter here at the Post. And I'm excited to be talking with our experts this morning about the global vaccine effort. Um, And our guests are Unilever CEO and global leader on the Sanitation and Water for All Council, Alan Jope and Jose Manuel Barroso, a former prime minister of Portugal and chair of the Global Vaccine Alliance known as Gavi. Welcome to you both.
1: Hi, page.
0: So uh, let's start with you, uh, Jose Manuel. Uh, President Biden is planning to officially announce this afternoon his new effort to buy 500 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine to share with other countries. Um, what does this mean for the global vaccine effort as we look at the vaccines that have been distributed thus far and how far the world is from meeting the goals that have been set?
1: Well, we are extremely grateful for this uh, decision of the American government. And we believe it's a great contribution to COVAX. It will be possible to vaccinate more people and sooner. We expect this to start in August. So that's a very important contribution. In fact, we have been uh, ourselves at Gavi, but also COVAX, that is a global facility that was created by Gavi together with the CEPI and World Health Organization. We have been asking uh, donor countries to contribute more, but also to share doses and to do uh, whatever it is possible to put an end to this pandemic. And certainly this is a great uh, gesture from President Biden and from the U.S. government, and we very much welcome it.
0: Well, we know that the G7 summit uh, meeting begins tomorrow and there's going to be a lot of discussion of the global vaccination efforts. Uh, Alan, what action plan do you hope to see from world leaders on bridging the global vaccine divide?
2: Well, uh, Paige, I I hope that we see um, an acceleration of the global vaccine rollout, but we have to also keep the focus on handwashing. soap. one of the WHO's First recommendations um, was that um, COVID-19 is best um, prevented by handwashing with soap. By the way, along with um, many other diseases that kill hundreds of thousands of kids every year, um, handwashing with soap lowers the risk of contracting COVID-19 by 36%. And can you believe that two in five people around the world still don't have access to handwashing facilities at home? And progress on this sustainable development goal six, clean water and sanitation, is just far too slow. And I I expect that the G7 leaders, as well as committing to accelerating uh, vaccine rollout, will remind us of the holy trinity of hands, face and space.
0: Well, and Alan, to your point, We have seen more emphasis uh, on hand washing and more awareness of that, but how do you think the pandemic has particularly highlighted uh, the need for access to clean water and sanitation?
2: Um, You know, this is, of course, first and foremost, it's a human health issue. Um, For example, there's about 300,000 children die unnecessarily each year just from uh, diarrhea-based diseases. Um, This wash, water, sanitation and hygiene inequality is also an economic issue. It holds back um, productivity Uh, in many countries. It's estimated up to 5% of GDP is being eliminated because of poor access to hygiene. And I guess we're hopeful that a lasting legacy of the pandemic is that as we build back better, everyone everywhere has accelerated access, not just to a vaccine, but to clean water, decent toilet facilities, and proper hygiene.
0: Jose Emanuel, want to ask you about uh, what the goals should be in terms of getting vaccines to uh, less developed and poor countries. And some experts are calling on G7 leaders to share at least 1 billion and aim for 2 billion vaccines to low- and middle-income countries by the end of the year and trying to get to 60 to 70% vaccination in every country by 2022. Is this a realistic goal?
1: Uh, I think it is. If there is a political will, we can do it. In fact, our goal uh, with COVAX is by the end of this year, beginning of next year, to have 1.8 billion doses delivered. And in fact, after these announcements, and I expect to hear other announcements in the G7, and in fact, in other occasions, just. Last week, uh, I was co-hosting with the Prime Minister of Japan, a pledging conference that was also very important from a a financial point of view. And by the way, there was before that another uh, investment event co-hosted by Gavi and uh, Secretary Blinken. So we are really mobilizing now uh, all the goodwill in the world. And I think that it's not just a question of justice, but it's a question of our self-interest, including. The interest of the more developed countries, because it's obvious that uh, the more time we allow the virus to be circulating, the more probable it will be to have more infections and reinfections, new variants, potentially more transmissible and more dangerous. By the way, we are seeing that with some new variants. So uh, it's impossible to think that we are going to solve this matter just, let's say, in the United States. Uh, And in Europe or in some other developed countries, we cannot keep the world closed forever. We have to live, get out of these lockdowns. And so that's why we are saying just this morning, I was speaking with my good friend, the executive director of uh, the IMF, uh, Kristalina Georgieva. And uh, and, uh, as she's been saying, the best economic policy today is vaccination, better than uh, fiscal policy, or monetary policy. Of course, we need the support of fiscal policy and monetary policy. But uh, when I say vaccination, let me also just add to what Alan was saying. Of course, that means also clean water, sanitation, hygiene. And one of the points about this is that when we, for instance, in Gavi, that have been vaccinating children all over the world, but specifically on the most vulnerable societies, when we go and try to vaccinate those children, uh, that's an entry point where we see that also a problem very often is a problem of the lack of basic hygiene of not washing their hands. And by the way, I'm very proud of the cooperation that Gavi has have uh, has kept with uh, with um, um, namely with our friend Alain, with I would say Gavi champion and Unilever. We, we have some specific uh, partnerships, public-private partnerships. In fact, in uh, uh, India and Indonesia, where we have seen the results of uh, Preventing action. So I think it's a moment. I mean, if this is not a wake up call for the world, when will we have it? I think this is a wake up call for the world of the need to address the issue of public health, not only because it's a human issue, but also from the economic impact. So when we have to think about public health, we have to think this as well in terms of economic resilience. That's why I think there is now a strong case for generosity solidarity, but also in the interest of the developed world and, I'd say, the global economy.
0: So, obviously, a lot of discussion among the G7 leaders this weekend, but what about the broader G20 nations? Uh, Is it incumbent upon them also to contribute more to the financing the global vaccine effort?
1: Yes, certainly. You know, I have the privilege of being in all those meetings because during 10 years I was leading the European Commission so I was in the G8 at that time. Russia was still a member of the G8. Uh, So until uh, from 2004 to 2014. And also we, in fact, created the G20 at the level of heads of state and government after the financial crisis of 2008. The first uh, G20 took place in Washington, the second in London, the third in Pittsburgh, and so on. And so I can give you my personal testimony. These meetings can make a difference. I know that sometimes there is a lot of skepticism, even cynicism. Oh, these are political leaders just talking. Okay, there is also this uh, sometimes politics in the, let's say, photo opportunity. But it can be more than that. For instance, during the financial crisis, the G20 was extremely important to avoid uh, full-scale protectionism and to avoid even more difficult situations. So the same we are asking now. From the G7, certainly, democracies, uh, more advanced economies like the United States, Canada, Japan, and Europeans that are there. But also, I think we should ask the same from others that are very important because public health is a global public good. We may have political differences, let's say, between the United States and China. Certainly there are. But when it comes to public health, I hope that everybody understands that we have to be on this together. United States, China, Europe, all of us. So China, India, Brazil, Turkey, South Africa, all of the members of the Saudi Arabia, all of the members of G20 can also give a very important contribution because I know from my experience that when we have at least this leadership at global level, the G7 and the G20, then things happen. And we avoid some bad things from happening, which is also sometimes very important.
0: Alan, I want to ask you about the UK's role in this. And we know the UK has access to 100 million surplus vaccine doses. What do you see as the country's role in aiding the global effort? And is Biden's announcement of sharing uh, 500 million vaccines putting more pressure on the
2: UK to follow suit? You know, Paige, I want to pick up um, some of the themes that uh, Jose mentioned in, uh, in answering your question. And it's the idea of cooperation and collaboration. There are a few big problems in the world. Climate change, massive threat to humanity, bigger even than this pandemic. Inequality, massive threat to humanity, bigger even than this pandemic. The loss of nature, huge threat to humanity. None of these problems can be tackled by one country or even one sector. And so the G7 and the G20 are great examples of multi-country collaboration, but we also need multi-sector collaboration. If we're gonna tackle COVID, if we're gonna tackle climate change, if we're gonna tackle inequality, it's going to require not just governments, but also the private sector, the full power and might, the innovative resources of the private sector, as well as civil society and our friends at uh, Gavi. I'm concerned some of the listeners may not know uh, what Gavi is, it's the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. It's at the center of the global cooperation effort to tackle this uh, pandemic. And so it's great that the US and Britain are stepping up to um, donate and create cooperation across countries, but we also need cooperation across sectors, if we're to tackle these big themes. And I'm delighted to hear from José his personal testimony um, of the power of these uh, cooperative bodies.
0: You know, both of you are talking uh, in very inspiring ways about this potential for collaboration globally. Um, and yet there's some really harsh realities here, which is the COVAX effort has been underfunded. Uh, The original goal was to procure and distribute 2 billion doses of vaccine by the end of 2021. At this point, COVAX has only shipped uh, around 81 million vaccines. Um, Jose Manuel, I want to ask you to to respond to that situation. And uh, should there be a new goal for COVAX in 2021? Or do you think that there's still hope of reaching that goal, that original
1: goal? Uh, What my management of uh, COVAX tells me Uh, is that it's possible, uh, beginning next year, most likely, to achieve that goal. But let me explain why it was not possible to do it, for basically two reasons. One is that uh, one of our most important suppliers is India. Uh, And India is the biggest producer of vaccines in the world. And as you know, India is facing a terrible, uh, dramatic pandemic. And so we fully support also the efforts of India to look for their own people. So, But that has been a delay in supply of vaccines and deliveries. Besides that, let's also be completely frank and honest, Uh, when we uh, as COVAX, so Gavi plus the others, we have launched COVAX, what happened was that the richest countries had already locked in most of the supply. That's the reality. And so, of course, there was less to distribute through the only Multilateral scheme we have today to distribute vaccines in the world, that is COVAX. That's why we are asking developed countries not only to finance and to accelerate, if possible, the financing, but also to dose sharing, sharing some of the surplus doses they have, and also to put an end to um, export restrictions because vaccines to be produced also need a very complex supply chain. And there have been also some problems of production the we are in contact direct contact with the, the companies the manufacturers that they are by the way are making a big effort to uh, revamp their production and that's why by the way once again conc- uh, um, agreeing with what alan said this is a public private issue partnership we need to have on board the governments namely the richest and most powerful countries in the world but we also need to have on board the manufacturers, we also have to have on board, of course, the civil society uh, in general. So it's an extremely complex situation. We never had a multilateral effort like this one. It's historic. Never happened. There are some delays, but we, all, we were already expecting that the second half of the year, we would recover part of the delay. And I still believe this is possible. Certainly, it will be possible if you have the additional resources. Uh, financial resources and others that are needed for such a uh, historic task.
0: I've got a question uh, specifically about distribution decisions that I'd like to hear from both of you on. And that is, when you're dealing with the limited supply and you're trying to think strategically about where, which countries to send the doses to and how many doses to give each country, what are the metrics that should be used? in making those decisions. Uh, Alan, I'd like to hear from you first and then Jose uh, Manuel.
2: Yeah, um, Paige, the the first thing that we're doing is encouraging all of our employees to get vaccinated. Um, Vaccine hesitancy is a huge problem in many, many jurisdictions and countries. Um, What we're trying to do is conduct ourselves ethically. We want to facilitate the rollout of vaccines through, uh, for example, we have a very strong cold, cold supply chain infrastructure. And we've been helping in places like Indonesia and India on how to build low-cost uh, refrigeration and um, capability to to manage the rollout but we want to make sure we don't use our private sector strength to jump the queue. I, I don't want to see Unilever people being employed uh, being vaccinated ahead of essential health worker in key countries in India um, there is quite a good supply and so we've been covering the cost of vaccination for all of our uh, employees all of our immediate partners and all of their families that's about three hundred thousand people um, including in rural areas uh, in indonesia there's a, a government-run program called goton royong which back translates as mutual cooperation um, and that's a great example of government industry cooperation uh, happening in indonesia so i don't think it's unilever's job to decide which countries get access to covax but it is our job to encourage employees to get vaccinated. And it is our job to partner with governments on the ground where, for example, financial resources are scarce.
0: And so, Jose Mignot, please weigh in too. Yeah.
1: So globally, members of COVAX, we have now 193 countries or territories. And we have 92 of them that are what we call AMCs, advanced market commitment. They are, let's say, low uh, and low middle income countries. Today, we are putting the emphasis on that. The goal of COVAX was to have equitable, if possible, completely equitable distribution. It's obvious that this is not happening. To be very blunt, today we can say that if you consider all the developed world, at least 30% have already been vaccinated, while in low-income countries, less than 1% have been vaccinated. So there is a real ethical, moral issue here. Now, in terms of distribution, we are now, at least COVAX, the commitment is to distribute it on an equitable basis. And, of course, there, are, there is an algorithm, if you want, that takes in consideration GDP per capita, the needs, uh, the uh, issues of also the country preparedness. For instance, some of these vaccines require cold chain, and some countries are, are not prepared for dealing with this, by the way. That's, that's it's also important to understand. This is not just to buy vaccines, it's to make sure that vaccines are delivered, that they get to the arms of people. So, but the commitment of COVAX is to have overall as equitable as possible. So, without political interference, without vaccine diplomacy, uh, as sometimes happens. So, that's why I made that appeal before. This should not be seen as a beauty contest between countries or as vaccine nationalism. This is a global public threat. So uh, public health is a global public good where we should cooperate because uh, for moral ethical reasons, but also because if we don't do it successfully, we run the risk of having to fight against this pandemic for more time than what we would like to be fighting.
0: I want to ask both of you as well, about a contentious issue. And that is the question of waiving patent protections for the vaccines. And as we know, President Biden has called for that. And yet some of the European nations have argued that this isn't going to do much quickly to actually increase the supply. Uh, Jose Manuel, how do you think about that? Do you think that could be a useful tool? Where do you kind of stand on that issue?
1: Look, uh, very frankly, uh, in Gavi, there are different positions on that. So I cannot uh, give you uh, an answer on behalf of Gavi because on Gadi we have different countries with different perspectives. Uh, one point is important, I think, to say. Everything that is to get quicker, we will support. But the issue is more complex than the simple waiving of patents. Uh, the issue is also know-how, the transfer of know-how, because to make a vaccine is a very complex issue. A vaccine is not just a product, it's a process that requires extremely complex uh, supply chain and manufacturing capabilities, know-how. So uh, in case we want to accelerate, we need to do that also with uh, uh, not only the waiving of patents, but also uh, with the transfer of uh, technology and know-how. I personally, but now I'm speaking to you personally, I have been making some appeals for that waiving of patents well before this situation now. But uh, for this current pandemic, we cannot expect this to be the solution immediately. Because first of all, we need to have an agreement on WTO that will take time. And also some of these technologies, they will take several years to be, to be um, let's say, distributed and implemented in some developing countries. There are some very interesting programs, for instance, European Union has some important programs of uh, uh, creating manufacturing capacity in Africa. We believe diversification of, of production is extremely important, but frankly, we, we cannot think that now the simple waiving of patents will be a miracle in this situation. It's a great, great gesture, we welcome the idea, uh, but, uh, but I believe we have to go beyond that and it will take some time. So now the priority should be uh, sharing doses more financing for the existing vaccines, and also putting an end to uh, export restrictions. This should be the priority if you want to beat this virus.
2: Yeah, page. Uh, yeah, let me just build yeah, on that. here, I, I, um, Yes. Thanks. What, what we have is not a shortage of intellectual property. What we have is a supply chain constraint, and uh, what we've learned in our own supply chain for simple consumer products. Is that the most robust, the most resilient, and the most efficient supply chains are supply chains that are globally interconnected? So we were able to continue to manufacture and supply essential goods all through the pandemic with a very high rate of uh, service, not because we retreated to some crazy nationally insulated sets of supply chains around the world, but be precisely because we had a globally networked supply chain with multiple points of redundancy, uh, several points of backup. And um, it strikes me with a private sector perspective that that's exactly what we need for vaccines. We need a flexible, super efficient supply chain uh, that is globally connected. And that's the challenge, much more so than one of intellectual property. In fact, I think the whole world has been stunned at the medical miracle of how quickly and how many different vaccine technologies have been uh, brought to the fore. So what we need is money and supply chain know-how.
0: In our remaining time, I wanna ask you about uh, prevention of future pandemics um, and uh, so many considerations here. Um, But Alan, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the most important steps to prevent future pandemics like this one?
2: Well, look. Um, the sad reality is that those who are least likely to receive the vaccine are also those who are most likely to suffer from lack of access to water, sanitation, and hygiene in their in their homes, in their healthcare facilities, in their schools. This is by far not the first pandemic, and it certainly won't be the last. So, as well as building the pandemic early warning systems that we need, we do need to invest in that most basic form of prevention of hand washing with clean water and soap. You know, it's, it's 2021, how can it be possible that we can put robots on Mars, we can map the human gene- genome for a hundred bucks, uh, we can create multiple vaccines to a new disease in less than a year, but we can't get basic soap and water to everyone in the world. So everyone in the world has been promised uh, access to hygiene by 2030 as part of sustainable development, goal six, clean water and sanitation. There is a gap there that needs closing, and that's where the important work of an organization called Sanitation and Water for All comes in. And uh, Sanitation and Water for All are working with national, regional, uh, global leaders to ensure that hygiene standards are raised and that the most vulnerable and marginalized who are being impacted by COVID are not being left behind when it comes to the simple access to water, sanitation, and hygiene.
0: Alan, you also previously mentioned the issue of climate change, and I know Unilever is striving for net zero emissions by 2039. Um, But my question is, if we can't even achieve global solidarity on vaccines at this G7 summit, do you see that as uh, sort of bad news for the potential for achieving global solidarity in fighting climate change?
2: Well, let's be clear, Um, it's not a climate threat, it's a climate emergency. Um, We've got about nine years left to uh, start reducing um, emissions. And uh, it is the ultimate test of collaboration across sectors. There's some quite bleak projections. Uh, What I do know is that the COP26 in Glasgow in November is going to be a moment of truth. We're seeing governments around the world stepping up the depth of commitments that they're making, and I'm delighted that sector after sector of the business community are adding their voices. And so, increasingly, Unilever doesn't stand alone calling for the decarbonization of our operations. You know, it's it's good business sense. There will be a price on carbon for sure. Um, and so, the the less carbon intensive your business is, uh, the lower your costs are going to be. And so. Uh, I hope November in Glasgow, my hometown, there's no better place you could be in November, um, is a moment where we see uh, governments and the private sector come together to make new, stronger commitments and put plans in place that uh, start to deliver those uh, those commitments. One final point: uh, we put our own carbon transition plan to our shareholders in May. We were the first, we're the first major company that committed to putting its climate transition plan to a shareholder vote. And it squeaked through with 99.65% support from our shareholders. And I think that shows that now the capital markets are starting to put a price on carbon. And uh, when that happens, I think it should uh, fill us all with a little bit more hope, but it is an emergency and it needs urgent action.
0: Jose Manuel, There's been a renewed debate over the origins of the coronavirus, and we still have some questions remaining about what might have happened there. How important is it to to find that out as we try to think about how to prevent the next pandemic?
1: Of course, it will be good to know exactly what happened. We still don't have the complete certainty on that matter. Um, but I think the lessons to be learned from this pandemic is in fact to increase. Uh, mechanisms of transparency, mechanisms of early warning. The reality is that the world was not prepared for this pandemic. Let's be frank about that. Even the most powerful countries, most developed, richest countries in the world, there were things that were lacking. And one thing that was lacking also was a kind of a protocol of a reaction uh, to this kind of pandemic, the information. Uh, The science afterwards was remarkable. I mean, it it is historic what was achieved in such a short period to develop new vaccines and vaccine some of them with new platforms, by the way, very promising for the future of medicine. So remarkable what science has been doing. But unfortunately, and I speak as a former political leader, I have to say politics failed. There was not sufficient um, cooperation there was not sufficient transparency, and there was a delay in the response to this pandemic in, in, in many countries. So I'm not going now to enter in the in game of shaming uh, or, or blaming. I don't think it's helpful. Uh, but I think that as a global community, we should really draw strict lessons about what happened, so that we are prepared for the next one. Because as scientists say it's evolutionarily certain there will be new pandemics. And that's why I think we should use this occasion, not only in terms of pandemic preparedness, but also to look at this issue issue in a holistic way in terms of health and economic resilience, including climate change. Because, in fact, all these matters are connected. It's about the relation of man or people with nature in general. It's a relation that we also want to have with each other in a way, this pandemic is an existential crisis. It's a matter of life and death. When we see people that are really afraid of dying, we see uh, grandparents that cannot hurt their grandchildren. So, and, But at the same time, it's a global pandemic. So in a way, it's global. everybody's in a way or another, connected with this pandemic. Or is isolated because it cannot even go out to the street, cannot be with uh, people from its family. So if not now, when? That's why we have to use this occasion to think seriously, including the biggest powers on the world, about me- mechanisms of prevention, including, by the way, it was already mentioned, I will not repeat everything Alan said about uh, clean water, sanitation, hygiene, because this is the first matter uh, when it comes to public health prevention, but also looking at all, because, all the aspects. Because look, one point that is interesting, uh, tragically, but interesting, is that even the richest countries with some new diseases, uh, diseases of affluent countries like obesity and others, we have seen some of those people are more vulnerable to this this pandemic. So the idea, the simplistic idea that because you are more developed, because now you have a low, uh, let's say, uh, uh, infant mortality, and you have higher life expectancy in some of our societies, we are better protected against this kind of disease. That's not true. That's not true. We are also all affected by the situation. So that's the moment for the global community to think about these matters of uh, public health holistically, linking it also to the protection of our environment, to the fight against climate change, and to consider public health a global public good.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But Jose Manuel Barroso and Alan Jope, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this discussion. It was fascinating. My pleasure.
2: Thanks very thank much, very Paige. Much.
0: Thank you. Well, please come back and join Washington Post Live tomorrow at 9 a.m. for First Look with Jonathan Capehart. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. As always, thank you so much for watching.